Welcome to the Center for Grassland Studies podcast series. I'm your host, Margo McKendry, Program Coordinator for the Center. In today's interview, we'll be speaking with Dr. Rob Mitchell, Research Leader and Location Coordinator with the USDA ARS Wheat, Sorghum, and Forage Research Unit in Lincoln, Nebraska. He also serves as an adjunct professor in the Department of Agronomy and Horticulture at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Dr. Mitchell, thank you for taking time to speak with me. You bet, Margo. It's good to be here. Thank you. I recently read an article dealing with research, which you were part of, related to management controls and bioenergy feedstocks on marginally productive croplands. Let's start off the session by defining some commonly used terms. Can you talk to us about bioenergy feedstock? Sure. Um, Bioenergy feedstocks basically is kind of a general term that we use that refers to the raw material that's used to make the final product. For our purposes, we typically think in the mindset of transportation fuels. And so if you think about for most of Nebraska, we're familiar with corn grain, and that's used as the feedstock for ethanol production. So in most of my research on renewable fuels and bioenergy, I really focus on biomass feedstocks like switchgrass, big blue stem, Indian grass, or corn stover, which are the raw materials used to produce the biofuels. And what about biofuel? Can you kind of define that for us too? You bet. So kind of generally speaking, biofuels are produced directly from organic material. When we think of biofuels, again, ethanol from corn grain is another good example of a biofuel. It is a a transportation fuel that's produced directly from renewable organic material. You can kind of contrast biofuels with fossil fuels like oil or coal and natural gas if if you'd like to. I kind of like to think of it as a a new carbon source versus an old carbon source. And so when we go through the process of, of looking at biofuels or renewable fuels, that new carbon source really is a good renewable source of bioenergy for us. As you mentioned earlier, you work primarily with switchgrass, big blue stem, and Indian grass. Can you give us a little background on these grasses? Yeah, well, switchgrass, big blue stem, and Indian grass are grasses that are native to North America. They're native to the tall grass prairie ecosystem in North America. If you kind of think about much of the central U.S., they fit very well. In uh, in the case of switchgrass, switchgrass occurs in most of the the contiguous 48 states. It's um, prominent from coast to coast, with the exception of the West Coast. It doesn't show up there hardly at all, <clears throat> but it goes up to about 55 degrees north latitude, so it has a pretty broad expanse, goes north well into Canada, and goes south down into Mexico. So it has really a, a broad geographic range, if you will. Uh, big blue stem and Indian grass are very similar. And so these grasses really make a, a good opportunity as feedstocks for biomass energy. They have a really broad adaption and are very well uh, suited for use in much of the U.S. It's uh, also interesting maybe to point out that University of Nebraska and the USDA Agricultural Research Service started working with switchgrass, big blue stem, and Indian grass in 1935. And we have worked with uh, those perennial grasses continuously since 1935. So we have a long history of working in these grasses. Again, historically and initially, they were used to primarily revegetate the grasslands after the drought of the 30s, have then since been used for um, seeding CRP, for seeding pasture, and we have released most of the cultivars that are utilized in much of the central U.S. from here in our program. 
Yeah, and I didn't realize that, that that's been quite a while you've been doing that. That's yeah, we have a really long history of working with these perennial grasses. So it's something we're certainly very comfortable with and we have a lot of good background in. And it's also really neat to note that <clears throat> historically we've had really now three uh, grass breeders working on uh, these perennial grasses for either conservation or grazing or bioenergy. And uh, Lawrence Newell started in 1935 and he worked into the early 1970s. Ken Vogel followed him in uh, the early 1970s and worked until uh, uh, 2013. And since 2013, Dr. Serge Edme has worked in those areas. So we've got a really long continuous program working in these perennial grasses and it's it really has borne a lot of fruit over time. Now, the perennial grasses to be grown and harvested as bioenergy feedstock are expected to be grown on marginal cropland. How do you define marginal cropland? Yeah, that's a really good question. First, it's probably important for us to point out that farmers are well aware of the fields and the sites within their fields that are marginally productive. They're very well aware of those. Really, these fields or maybe even parts of the fields are not as productive year in and year out. And so I like to really define kind of the marginality of cropland based on its ability to produce corn because we've got data that's available and most people can relate to corn yield to some extent. So some of the long-term research that we've done and really continue to do supports that marginally productive cropland has a long-term average corn yield that's about 25% below the long-term county average yield. And so if your county average yield is 200 bushels per acre, which is obviously pretty high, marginally productive fields or areas within those fields would really have a significantly reduced yield down below 150 bushels per acre. Again, as I mentioned, that 200 bushels per acre is probably high, but it makes an easy math for me. The justifications for converting marginal lands from intensely managed annual row crop systems to dedicated perennial cellulosic production systems is expected to yield environmental and climate benefits. What are some of the benefits? Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, um, you can think about biofuels being produced from new carbon and fossil fuels being produced from old carbon. Fits my mind pretty well. So the new carbon sources like corn grain or switchgrass, they're primarily grown from atmospheric carbon. So the process of growing that feedstock doesn't release hardly any extra carbon back into the atmosphere. It's just cycling what's already present. The exception to that is when we start applying inputs like uh, fertilizer and, and herbicides and things like that. And nitrogen is obviously the big one that impacts that. When we produce fuel from these feedstocks, like from corn or switchgrass, again, that feedstock word comes back up again. There's a release of some of that extra carbon into the atmosphere through that whole fuel production process. We can produce gas or diesel from the fossil fuels. The fuel produced all comes from old carbon that's been stored in the earth. So there's an increase in atmospheric carbon by the production burning of that fossil fuel. So we've taken a a source of carbon that's old, that's stored in the earth, and now we're releasing it into the atmosphere through combustion in our internal combustion engines or uh, through the, the production process. And that's really why we've seen such an increase in atmospheric carbon uh, with industrialization. And we can see that plotted very nicely over time from many, many sites across the the world. So one of the biggest environmental benefits of growing perennial grasses for biomass feedstocks is the significant increase we see in soil organic carbon. As most people are aware, our historic farming practices on the landscape have reduced our soil carbon numbers pretty significantly. That shows up in organic matter in our soils. And so if you compare the organic matter of much of our farmland to much of our grasslands, significantly reduced. And so, you know, you might estimate maybe half of that soil carbon has been lost. 
So we have a research project that we started in 1998 comparing no-till corn and switchgrass production on marginally productive cropland. And again, that's marginally productive based on some of the earlier um, information I shared with you where it's about 25% below the countywide average corn yield. It really is marginally productive because the soil the soils are shallow there and it's underlined by a, a heavy sand. And so it loses water pretty quickly. What's interesting in that particular site, really a very poorly productive site, switchgrass has stored more than a ton of soil organic carbon per acre per year, which is just a, a huge amount of carbon. And it has continued to do that for um, each year we've evaluated that in the study. Again, we don't evaluate that every year, but the trends that we've been evaluating, uh, the last evaluation we did was after 16 years of production, it's still continuing to store soil organic carbon. So we really see from a soil organic carbon perspective that these perennial grasses can continue to store carbon and store carbon and store carbon, which is really important in that it's taking CO2 from the atmosphere and putting it in the soil where it now is, is kind of stored in a, in a locked vault, if you will, until that soil is disturbed. And so that's a real benefit for us to actually be able to reduce the atmospheric CO2 and basically convert it into soil organic carbon that's stored below ground. Again, that's primarily from the roots and organic matter and the, the depth of root production in these perennial grasses. Again, it's important that many of these perennial grasses will root well down past six feet. So they'll, they'll go six to 10 feet deep, do a great job of, of storing carbon as those root masses die and as they continue to, to regenerate. It's just a, a great mechanism for storing carbon. Another pretty significant benefit that we've seen is reduced greenhouse gas emissions. I think it's probably easiest for most of us to think about kind of the difference between growing switchgrass and growing corn. Most people are familiar with corn and, and know that corn is an annual and that you've got to plant it every year. It's got to be fertilized every year and it's got to be sprayed every year, plus a, a number of other management practices. Well, switchgrass is a perennial. And what makes uh, switchgrass pretty unique is that you can plant it one time. And if you do a good job managing it, you can really manage it in perpetuity. Um, it can last for decades and decades. As, as I mentioned earlier, we have a study that was planted in 1998, and it's still growing very productively. That's a, a testament to the ability of switchgrass to kind of hang in there over the long term. And again, these are perennial grasses that were really made to, to withstand a lot of abuse. But the better job you do managing them, the longer they'll stay in the stand and the more productive they'll be. Although switchgrass only needs to be planted one time, it does need annual fertilizer application. What we've seen is that we can actually do a pretty good job of growing switchgrass productively on our marginally productive sites with about a third or fourth as much um, nitrogen as an average corn crop would get. For many of the areas that we are growing switchgrass, we're, we can do pretty well with about 25 to 50 pounds of nitrogen per year, where again, corn would require more than that. Again, these Differences between the management practices in corn and switchgrass really result in a pretty significant difference in the greenhouse gases, primarily in the form of carbon and nitrous oxide that are released from the system. And again, that nitrogen application process is, is a big input into the system and is one of those that the, the carbon equivalents can release pretty quickly. Uh, there are also some other environmental benefits that show up with growing these perennial grasses on the landscape. And We've done a little bit of work in these areas. Things like uh, reducing soil erosion is a big deal. As I've talked about before, growing these on marginally productive sites, that can be a pretty significant impact. As all of us are well aware, seeing soil flowing down the road ditch is not a good thing. And 
these perennial grasses are not only deeply rooted, as I mentioned earlier, but also have uh, broad fibrous root systems that are close to the soil surface and do a very nice job of holding the soil in place. That, uh, that whole process can really provide big long-term benefits, and not only to us, but you know, as we think about uh, Gulf hypoxia, those are issues that uh, originate in the central part of the U.S. and then go down our waterways and are dumped into the Gulf. If we can kind of uh, do a good job of managing these landscapes with perennial grasses and maybe even strategically placing them on the landscape, uh, they can do a very nice job of filtering that soil and reducing erosion. Another really positive benefit is from a wildlife perspective. You know, I work a lot in, in these fields, and so I get out and switch grass fields a lot and big blue stem and Indian grass as well. And it's always interesting to me the, the difference you see in wildlife, everything from the things you would expect like pheasants and quail and even the occasional prairie chicken to uh, some of the things you don't expect to see like the uh, Cope's gray tree frog is one that I see pretty regularly just hanging out on switchgrass. I think, hey, what's this tree frog doing here on the switchgrass? But it seems to like it. So um, providing that wildlife benefit does provide a, a, a really nice uh, benefit to the environment and um, is something that we're trying to do a better job of quantifying as we're moving forward in some of our research. Um, Dr. Redfern and uh, Dr. Little have got a, a study where we're starting to look at wildlife habitat, as well as Dr. Julie Peterson looking at some of the insect activities. More and more benefits we're seeing from uh, these perennial grasses grown on the landscape on marginally productive lands with the prospects of being grown as a bioenergy feedstock. It'll be interesting to see the results of some of that research you mentioned. That's kind Yeah, it'll be fun. It will be. Where are we in having these perennial feedstocks like mm-hmm. switchgrass significantly contributing to energy production? Yeah, that's really the $64,000 question there, Margo. And the, the answer is yes. We have the technology available to do that. Is it happening at a large scale yet? The answer to that is no. There are plants that are in production now utilizing cellulosic feedstocks, primarily corn stover because it's much more readily available um, to produce fuels. And that, that they work pretty well. So we have the technology developed to convert grasses like switchgrass or big blue stem or Indian grass into transportation fuels. In fact, we really have a couple of different options or several different options, really. The two primary that I think about are not only producing ethanol, which is the one we've spent much of our time working on, but also uh, converting that material to a bio oil. That's an exciting prospect for us as well. We've really just gotten into that over the last decade and you know, seen some promises in that area. Some people often ask me, well, why don't we just use switchgrass in our corn grain ethanol plants? And that would be really nice. And, and I see that as something we may end up doing over time. But it's important to note that uh, the ethanol process for, for switchgrass is not as easy as producing ethanol from corn grain. Um, obviously, we've been producing ethanol from corn grain for, for centuries, um, mostly for human consumption. They're different processes, but the two processes are compatible. So to produce ethanol from switchgrass or big blue stem or Indian grass or corn stalks, and we have to break down the cell wall. And the cell wall, it was made to be pretty pretty resilient. It's a hard nut to crack. And so you have to take the hemicellulose, cellulose, and lignin and break those down. The lignin doesn't provide us much good, but we can liberate some of the sugars from that cell wall and the cell solubles that are inside of that cell wall. And then those sugars can be made available to convert to ethanol. So that can be fermented. Again, the process is kind of expensive at this point. So it's not only expensive from an input perspective, but it's also can be expensive energetically. 
It often requires a, a pretreatment process, which acids or hot water often work the best to kind of rupture those cells and start the process of breaking down those cell walls. And then using enzymes to further break down those cell walls and liberate the sugars. Again, after those cell walls have been broken down into the sugars, we can take that and run it through the same process as we do with corn grain ethanol and make ethanol from it. Um, the big difference is freeing those sugars. So setting the sugars free is a hard thing in these perennial grasses. Now, we've talked a lot over time that it makes really probably the most sense if we ever uh, get into this from a commercial scale production phase to co-locate what we often refer to as a lignocellulosic facility, that part of the facility that would use switchgrass or big blue stem or Indian grass or corn stalks with a corn grain ethanol plant um, to really take advantage of the infrastructure that's already there with the corn grain ethanol plant. There would need to be kind of some additional work done to break down those cell walls. But again, after you get past that point, that resulting uh, sugar solution can be utilized to produce ethanol. And as we kind of think about, well, what's left over? What, what, what can that be used for? If you think about sugarcane production, it's not so different from, from that. And so much of the South American sugarcane production, they squish the plant, get the sugars out of it, and they either make sugar or ethanol, depending on the price of the day. That leftover stuff that they call the bagasse could either be burned or it can be utilized in some other form to uh, produce energy. And so it could maybe be used as a coal replacement or uh, to generate electricity on site. And so those are where some of those uh, thought processes have gone as people have looked at commercializing these plants. The other kind of uh, pathway that we talked a little bit about that I mentioned is producing bio oil from the biomass. That the whole process of bio oil is We've done some work with other scientists within USDA ARS and also with Iowa State University looking at converting that bio oil. And the process that really seems to fit pretty well is a process called fast pyrolysis. And it's a process that's under high temperature, high pressure in the absence of oxygen, and it liquefies the biomass. So it's really, it really doesn't matter so much what you put into the process. So we often refer to that as a feedstock agnostic process. It doesn't matter if it gets switchgrass or corn stalks or big blue stem. That liquefies the product and it basically becomes an, an oil. And that oil then could be refined much like petroleum. There are some issues associated with kind of filtering some things out, but um, the general process is very similar to refining it like uh, crude oil. It makes a lot of sense that maybe something like that could be moved into the pipeline process and be um, refined at a biorefinery. And it gives us a lot more options. Because obviously, from the ethanol plant perspective, you've kind of got a limited number of options. Ethanol, and ethanol is not as energy dense as gasoline or diesel. It's got about uh, two-thirds of the total energy per gallon, if you will, as uh, gasoline does. You look at the bio-oil production side, that really has a much higher energy density. And you can now produce jet fuel, you can produce gasoline, you can produce diesel, you can produce kerosene. You can produce what basically any of the petroleum distillates out of that same process. So... I think there's a lot of promise on the bio-oil side, um, but we'll kind of see where it goes over time. It does sound like there's a lot of promise there. Thank you for yeah. that. So as we get ready to wind down this interview, I have one more question for you. Yeah. Are producers ready to switch from a row crop system to a perennial cropping system? Yeah, that's a that's a really good thing. You know, the the culture of agriculture is very strong in Nebraska. We have a great system here in Nebraska with corn grain production, corn ethanol production, the locality of feedlots. And so that golden triangle concept works incredibly well here in Nebraska. So I certainly don't envision us replacing all the corn acres in Nebraska with switchgrass. That just doesn't make sense because 
so much of Nebraska is so well suited to growing corn and soybeans. But there are some locations um, within the state, maybe within even within fields, that we could do maybe a long-term better job of, of producing a crop like switchgrass on some of those areas. Those are the ones that really make the most sense. So as we start kind of looking at where these might fit well, kind of the CRP type grasslands that most people are familiar with are places where these uh, grasses would fit well and energy production might be long-term, not only the best, but maybe even the most productive and uh, economically productive for the producer. I think we're getting to the point where it's looking more and more like it could work and would be feasible for farmers. We've also been doing some work with a hybrid process where we would actually graze uh, some of this grass and then utilize it post-frost for biomass energy production. That might hold some promise as well. As we're all aware here in Nebraska, the livestock industry is is doing well, and we could provide grazing opportunities with these perennial grasses and then get off of those, allow them to regrow and have a, a harvestable crop or biomass feedstock after frost. And, and so we've tried to develop some opportunities and some systems. So we've basically got everything in place. We've got all the management practices in place. We've Got some exceptional plant material that's available to producers. Liberty switchgrass is one of the switchgrass varieties that we've developed here for, for biomass energy production. And so, so we've got basically everything in the can. As soon as uh, the industry decides, yeah, it's, it's time to move forward, we can be ready to, to jump at that, uh, much like we were with CRP. I think then farmers will respond to that if farmers can make an honest living doing it. Really, one of the things that might drive that might be some of our opportunities with carbon. Now, there's more and more talk now about putting a kind of a feasible price tag on carbon, if you will. Farmers could really respond well to that and, and be actually compensated in a re- really worthwhile manner. As I mentioned earlier, it's not uncommon for us to see over a ton of uh, carbon per acre per year sequestered in the soil. I, I don't have any idea what the, the crystal ball say a ton of carbon might be worth, but if a ton of carbon were priced at 50 or $100 per ton, that's fair return for a farmer. If it's five or ten dollars, as has been historically, that doesn't make much sense. But uh, so yeah, I, I think Nebraskans are are ready and willing to participate if it makes sense for them to do so. But again, I don't really see a time in my life where we'll be replacing all of the acres of switchgrass in Nebraska, all of the acres of corn in Nebraska with switchgrass. I really, I really see us um, being more of a niche. Maybe ten percent of the landscape would probably be uh, kind of a general idea about where it would fit in most of our watersheds in Nebraska. I did hear from one of the people we do a lot of work with that this is one of their um, highest switchgrass seed sales years ever, other than some of the CRP years that they have been selling a lot of switchgrass seed for conservation buffers. And so uh, um, kind of that erosion perspective that we talked about earlier, giving it an opportunity not only to collect soil, but also trap nutrients that are leaving uh, the site as well. So there are a lot of uses for these perennial grasses, and you probably, in reality, just kind of scratch the surface. I think this was really good to give our listeners um, something to think about and perhaps research on their own to determine what might be possible in their production systems, too, so that when the industry is ready, they'll be more knowledgeable. So this has been great. Thank you. You bet. And we're always here to answer questions if people have them. Again, I want to thank you for joining me today, Dr. Mitchell. I would like to mention that Dr. Mitchell will be making a September 27th presentation on seeded perennial grasslands, opportunities for marginal cropland in the Great Plains and Midwest as part of the Center's Fall Seminar Series. To learn more about the seminar series and how you may participate, go to grasslands.unl.edu. 
Thank you for listening. 